Good day, everyone. I'm Michael Morgan, host of the 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate today to have uh, Dr. Lauren Tessier, who's a practicing neuropathic physician. She's licensed by the state of Vermont, and she has a practice located in Waterbury, Vermont, and services local and international clients suffering from mold-related illness, which we're going to talk a bit about today, complicated by comorbid conditions such as MCS, MCAS, and chronic infections, including Lyme and co-infections, EBV, CMV, et cetera. And um, Lauren is uh, previously a CARS certified in 2016, treats not only biotoxin illnesses, but also overlooked forms of mold illness, including allergy, infection colonization, and uh, mycotoxosis, if I'm saying that correctly. So again, um, welcome to our uh, 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And uh, I thought maybe we could start with just a, a basic question. What are molds and mycotoxins and, and where are they found? Sure. So <clears throat> molds are a subsection of this whole entire kingdom called fungi. So you know how we have the, the plant kingdom and the mammal animal kingdom. We also have the fungi kingdom. <clears throat> and so Molds are a subsection in there. We also have yeasts and mushrooms and all these different things. But when it comes to drivers of illness, realistically, our yeasts and our molds tend to be uh, some of the, the bigger ones, especially in the environment. So when we talk about molds, I'm kind of using that language loosely. Um, and so when I'm dialoguing about this, I'm thinking again about the um, yeast and the molds. And these two in here are uh, very different in that yeasts can exist on their own. They're like these single celled little guys that can kind of float around and multiply, whereas molds tend to be multicellular. There needs to be a lot of little cells there to make up kind of a unit of mold. And so um, I like kind of getting that out of the way so people are aware. So some examples mm -hmm. of yeast are going to be, um, you know, different types of candida or even, you know, the saccharomyces that we use for brewing and cooking or the trichophytum that we find in skin infections, whereas our molds that our drivers of illness are going to be um, mostly that like aspergillus, penicillium, fusarium, stachy, wallemia. Um, and so, yeah, the molds are essentially just the living organism. Now the mycotoxins, and people get a little confused about this, it's M-Y-C-O as in myco rather than M-I-R-C-O as in small micro. So it's mycotoxins. And these mycotoxins are metabolites. They are products that are made by these molds and these fungi. Um, and, you know, molds, fungi, they, they make a lot of stuff, but mycotoxins are um, obviously toxins that are produced that have the capability of uh, being absorbed easily through the skin, through the digestive tract, through inhalation in the environment. And once they're inside the body, they really get into cells very easily and get into tissues, especially stuff that has a lot of fat. The problem is many of our important organs, all of our organs are important. <laughs> many of our important organs 
are filled with fat. And the most common ones are what? Your liver, your kidneys, and your brain, right? Your brain and your nervous system. So we find that these mycotoxins really uh, do a good job of kind of getting into the nervous system tissue because they, they're fat, they're like dissolves like, they get in there and once they are in there, they cause oxidative damage. And that's really where all of this process starts. Um, molds can be found anywhere. They are ubiquitous. They're inside, they're outside, you know, they're everywhere. Um, but in order that that shouldn't be something that scares people, what should really concern people is not that they're everywhere, but really being concerned about the things that help them grow in their environment. So their spores can be everywhere, their fragments can be everywhere, but so long as you control temperature, humidity, and ventilation, you can go a really long way in preventing just kind of the small ambient transient spores from growing into a big mold problem. So I think I think that's a 20,000 foot view for, for your, your question. No, that's a really, really nice uh, breakdown. And I appreciate that because I haven't, I, I haven't often heard somebody say, okay, this is the actual lesional chain, as we say in osteopathy, how things are connected. Yeah. In a way, you sound a little bit like a biologist because <laughs> you have to know the phylum of the plant kingdom and where it goes and why some things are kind of benign, like yeast and mold can be problematic. Um, and I think it's fascinating just to drill down on this a little bit that they're, when they're metabolized by the body, the mold, which are colonies are kind of attracted to fat and really mm -hmm. vital cells, right? Like, mm -hmm. like the liver and kidneys and brain, mm -hmm. and the oxidative stress. So that's probably, uh, that was kind of a blends into our next question. It's kind of like, why are they such profound drivers of illness? Yeah. So that yeah. be a piece of the puzzle, right? That's a huge piece of the puzzle. And so um, kind of to, to get into it a little bit more, and you're right, I love biology, I love science, I love chemistry, I'm, I'm all, all in it. Um, the The biggest driver of how, how they, the biggest driver of illness when it comes to the mycotoxins themselves, and this is separate from the organism, the organism causes different kinds of chaos, mm -hmm. um, but the toxin itself, once it gets in, it starts pulling electrons off things willy-nilly. And then when that happens, you start to get these oxidative damage issues. And really specifically, um, these oxidative damage issues are really targeted at fat. And again, as I mentioned, we have organs that are really heavily saturated in fat, but we also have cells. Every single part of a cell, the membrane on the outside, the membrane on the small little machinery, the small little organelles on the inside are... Um, very much targeted by these mycotoxins and can um, be impacted by them, especially our mitochondria, which are our, you know, powerhouses of the cell. They keep the cells going. And so um, that lipid peroxidation, after we kind of damage all of these things in our cells, we start to impact function, right? Because our function will follow form. So if we damage our form, our function is going to get impacted. And so um, what you see as a result is that uh, it's just a really wide array of symptoms. So any process of the human body, any tissue, any organ, any cell that has a bit of fat in it can get damaged. And then that function of that thing can get messed up. So this is why you will see people who, who are 
mycotoxin exposed have system, uh, many systems in the body impacted. And as a result, they have lots of different symptoms. And the hard part about really nailing down mold illness is that um, because of that, it's going to look different from person to person to person, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, someone might have uh, more of a profound like liver toxicity where someone might have more of a neurological cognitive reaction where some people might have more of a hormonal imbalance. Um, that's when it really starts to, uh, that's when it really starts to um, be dependent on what is happening for the person, how long they've been exposed to how much, to what mycotoxin. Um, and then on top of that, everything else that's happening in their body, are they nutrient depleted? Are they detoxing well? Do they have medications in them that might slow down detoxification, you know, so the list goes, goes on and on, um, just about how mycotoxins can interact with the body, the body and cause chaos that looks different for everyone. And that was another question I had in my mind when you were speaking, it's like, why is it that some people are more prone to this reaction and exposure than others? Mm-hmm. So it may be all those laundry lists of things you just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Depending. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, I'm sure people out there, you've heard of um, statin medications, cholesterol medications. You don't take them with grapefruit, right? The same way you don't take uh, antibiotics with your birth control, um, simply because when you put these two things together, they change the metabolism. And so you could Mm -hmm. end up with too much of the drug or not enough, depending on how your body is now moved into breaking it down. And so we see the same thing with mycotoxins. We see that mycotoxins can very much um, be impacted by a lot of the medications that you're taking, your detox pathways. I mean, heck, even your immune system's ability to identify and target these toxins. So it's, um, it's, it's really far reaching. And unfortunately, because there's so many different symptoms, for everyone, it gets kind of chalked up into the, uh, I don't know what this is. You have 30 different symptoms. This couldn't possibly be anything. So I'm going to mm-hmm. diagnose you with fibromyalgia and depression, right? So <laughs> Right, right, right. And this may seem like an overly simplistic question, but people that have more body fat, just fat in general, are they more uh, prone or more at risk for this as well? Maybe that doesn't track, but I just had to ask. Unclear, right? So these things bioaccumulate, as we mentioned, they get stored away in fat. And so um, the body has a natural ability to, when we don't understand how to navigate different toxins, the body will defensively throw stuff into fat and adipose tissue and kind of store it away to like deal with it later while it often deal with Mm -hmm. it later. So, um, you know, the question is maybe the fat is protecting people in, um, the here and now, but mm-hmm. soon as their body goes into a safer space and they are able to drop that weight and move that out, they're potentially going to have more coming into their circulation that their body's going to then have to deal with. So it's kind of short-term perfection, uh, uh, short-term protection, and maybe chaos and disruption later on down the road. And, you know, that's, uh, Lauren, that's a really key point, just to put a pin in that for a moment, because if people are fortunate enough to start to lose weight and detox, there might be hidden factors that have been stored in the fat that are going to start to come out that may complicate yeah. the issue, right? Yep. Yep. And that's not just mycotoxins. I mean, that's any fat soluble organic 
compound, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure like benzenes and toluenes and acrylamides, all those stuff on those, uh, you know, long-term toxin tests can get stored away in the fat along with those, um, persistent, uh, aromatic hydrocarbons, right. The PAHs that are all over the news right now. And I think in terms of my clinical experience, sometimes you have to be a little mindful of how quickly people detox. A little. <laughs> a little. Just a say little, the least, little. right? Yeah. 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 And I think that's the hard part too. I think a lot of people get excited um, about this concept of detox. And granted, your body can do a lot of things to move things out. It's called our deparation pathways, our peeing, our breathing, our pooping, our sweating. Mm-hmm. We have all these pathways that our body naturally moves these things out of. But when we start to detox and we start pushing on these pathways, so detox is almost, I, I'd say, kind of like the not the natural way of moving things out, like the forceful way, right? You not only can you, do you have to go slowly, but sometimes you got to do a lot of prep work. So the body knows what it's about to do. And then kind of to go backwards in time before the prep work, sometimes you need to do a lot of suppressive work for people. Sometimes you need to, um, uh, minimize their, their mast cell and their histamine reaction. So then that way you can do the prep work. And then, so that way you can start to gently detox. So, um, you know, I, I would like to say that anyone out there considering kind of detoxing for mold and doing that, that whole process always go low and slow, but definitely go with, you know, someone who's mold literate doesn't have to be me, you know, but go with someone who understands sensitive bodies, knows that going slower is better in the long run is faster in the long run, realistically. Um, yeah. And go with someone who knows their stuff because doing it on their own. I've seen a lot of people just get into trouble too quick, too soon by just, Oh, glutathione binders. I'm good to go. And you know, they, they end up in a histamine flare and sometimes even worse than before they got started. You know, it's really interesting, especially in this summit, um, the idea of mold and lime to kind of lump two things together yeah. hasn't been a big point of discussion, maybe until the last five or 10 years. But now mm-hmm. it's a subject yeah. where uh, uh, doctors like yourselves are looking at all the interactivity between mm-hmm. that. So for those of us in the memory space that I want to ask you about in just a minute, um, you have to be mindful of monitoring that detox, which I'm sure you do in your practice as well, just to see how people are smoothly reacting. I mean, the good news is you want to lose weight and you want to do some things that may impact memory. But on the other hand, the detox may also be a factor that could put people off if they're not uh, monitoring that, keeping that in mind as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to ask you, since it is the Alzheimer's World Summit, uh, what do you think is the interconnection then between mold? And I don't even know if we want to go into Lyme, but just mold in and of itself. Yeah. What do you think is, as far as a pathway and one interaction, why this would affect memory and, and cognitive ability uh, so much? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> no, so, please go ahead. Please. Okay, yeah. Good, good, good. So I, I want people to um, kind of picture the human body and picture a few different ports of entry. We have entry in through um, our mouth and through our stomach. We have entry in through inhalation going to our lungs because those are both ultimately end up dumping into the systemic blood system. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately we have seen this. Um, we have our olfactory bulb that directly, you know, leaves out of our cranium, has its little mm-hmm. nerve fingers down in our nose. And there have been studies, um, not only animal studies, um, that have demonstrated that mycotoxins have the ability to 
dissolve into that nerve membrane and end up in the olfactory bulb in the brain and cause damage to that tissue. Problem is the olfactory bulb, if people, people recall, smell is one of our strongest sense when it comes to emotional memory. And so that part of the brain, and correct me if I'm wrong, is very close and intertwined into that whole emotional limbic portion of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so when you're driving just inflammation up into the nose there, that's coming up through that cell, you know, you're going to be impacting a lot of things there, a lot of core, core mental functionings there. So there's three ways that things can get into the brain. So like I said, uh, or there's many ways, <laughs> the main ones that I've seen are through diet, inhalation, and then through that nose. Uh, we also know that uh, we can have some transdermal, so through the skin absorption of mycotoxins. And then um, there's also the potential um, for women through urogenital colonization with like certain types of candida. There's a, one study that showed that uh, uh, local um, candida in the vagina uh, secreted a certain mycotoxin called gliotoxin. And mm. so, so long as it gets into the systemic circulation, it's game on. Now everyone has this idea of, you know, the blood brain barrier is like impenetrable. It's there to protect the brain. Not the case. Right? <laughs> we, we have seen that shift and change a lot in the past um, few years. And we now know that you can essentially have this like leaky gut picture only of the vasculature in the brain. So I tell people once these mycotoxins go into systemic circulation, it's game on. It can absolutely hit the brain. And so soon as those oxidating mycotoxins get up into that nervous system tissue, they're going to cause local inflammation. They can sit on your serotonin and dopamine receptors. They can change the creation and breakdown of serotonin and dopamine. They can change the creation and breakdown of epinephrine and norepinephrine, all these really important neuroendocrine signaling hormones that we use for brain balance, uh, memory, all of these things. So what usually ends up happening for folks, the first sign is fatigue. And then after that, we start to see this foggy memory picture. Foggy memory, we call it brain fog. If you actually step back and you tease out brain fog, you start to see issues around word recall, issues around following conversation, reading comprehension, uh, short-term memory issues, like the list goes on and on. So when people say brain fog, it's, it's so many more symptoms than that. And for a while, I got into the habit of... Um, taking a mocha when people would come in. So mm -hmm. for those of you, I'm sure some of you are very familiar with this. This is the Montreal cognitive assessment tool where it's, you know, uh, draw the square here, name this animal, is this a rhinoceros, you know, so mm -hmm. um, uh, repeating patterns and numbers. And it was amazing to see, um, you know, people in their 20s with uh, graduate degrees, late 20s, graduate degrees, scoring insanely low levels on these mochas and just realizing you know the the true cognitive impact of these oxidative mycotoxins like it's tangible like we can see it and you can even undergo a certain brain mri certain brain imaging to show that different parts of your brain might be more inflamed 
or more kind of tightened and sclerosed down, um, mm -hmm. depending on your chemical exposure. We call these like chemical TBIs, right? Traumatic mm -hmm. brain injuries. Um, that particular test is called the, the neuroquant and it compares like your, your amygdala to someone else's in um, your same uh, gender and age or your lateral ventricle to someone in the same age and gender, all that kind of stuff. So it's really phenomenal to see that we can see these changes on MRI. They're going to look different for everyone. I want to make that clear. Um, mm -hmm. And we also see those cognitive, psychological components that come forward too. Um, kind of as a, a segue off of that, from that whole kind of mm -hmm. Alzheimer's memory world, I've also seen some clients where um, they almost develop um, kind of flat affect and even a uh, Parkinsonian kind of like picture. Mm -hmm. And when you step back into the literature and you do a deep dive, you see that mycotoxins, depending on the mycotoxin, can have a significant impact on the pre creation of dopamine in the brain. So, well, you know, yep. yeah, and that so, would make a difference for Parkinson's. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, from the Alzheimer's perspective, there's a, a, a wonderful practitioner, Dale Bredesen. Um, he was one of the first people to really uh, coin this concept of inhalational Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's type three, I believe. Um, and it's pretty much the, the brain fog and cognitive issues that come with the mold and mycotoxin exposure. Now, to add a little bit more chaos to this discussion, Thank we've, so <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've talked about the toxins. So what about the molds? What about the, the actual organism and their little particulate? Well, that can cause a big histamine flare, right? Histamine is stuff that causes the itching, the red, the swelling, um, you know, the, from the bee stings, you know, from the, the, the pollen in the air. Histamine is neuro excitatory. And so we'll also see inflammation following uh, histamine in the brain. And people who have too much histamine in the brain can have more of an anxious picture. Um, they can have a lot of brain fog too and headaches and these things. So, um, you know, I find that more of the neurocognitive stuff is associated with a mycotoxin picture, but it's still possible that you could be dealing with more of the histamine component rather than the toxin component. The histamine component I find is a little bit more easy to navigate if that's how your body is struggling with mold, whereas the toxic component, that's going to take you a bit longer to move out and clear out of your body. Well, that's quite an exposition. People may want to watch this again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I know just, for example, is one of the pathways for smell in cranial sacral therapy, you know, we talk about this area called glabella. It's a function, it's a junction between the nose and the forehead. Mm -hmm. And this area here in the brain, when you look at an internal slice of the brain, there's something called the cribriform plates. And these molecules can go right into the brain and affect these structures like the amygdala and the limbic system and the ventricles, all these areas we work on with the cranial to kind of clear all that out. Yep. Just that one area speaks. And Dr. Bredesen, we've done an extensive interview in this summit as well, Good. touching on things, but I really appreciate your focus on this particular uh, pathway. Yeah. Can, and, I, can I throw one more thing out there, Michael? Is that people, if you go to your provider and you tell them that you're concerned that mold is having an impact 
on your, you know, um, your, your brain fog, your ability to remember your Alzheimer's like picture and they go, and eh, it's not possible. Right. <laughs> it, you, you can go into the medical literature and find these things and, and build this up and put this together the way we have, the way you understand. And if you're not supported in that, with that person, by that person, you need to go somewhere else. Yeah. You need to find someone who's going to listen and do the deep digging for you. So I'm sorry to cut you off and get on my soapbox on that, but I wanted to throw that yeah. in there now. Summit to bring people information from all these different vectors. So we're talking a lot with other people about mast cell activation. Oh, good. Toxicity can be in the body. So people understand in a newer sense what's going on. So that's perfect. No, I understand. And that's your world. You see it all the time. Right. Um I have to ask in a, in a really a practical way, um, what do you think is, uh, whether whether it's memory related or not, cognitively related or not, what do you think is the most important treatment intervention and how can people treat themselves? And is there any risk to that? People will always like a little practical suggestions in these summits. Sure. Um, the first thing is avoidance. And I know that's really hard, for a lot of different folks, depending on finances or what's available to you. But if you're living in mold and you try to undergo recovery from mold, you not only potentially aren't going to get better, you run the risk of getting substantially worse because you're getting a double whammy of exposure. You're getting it in from the environment and then you're starting to get the amount that's stored away in your body coming through and out of storage. And so you're getting a double whammy. You're getting storage release and then you're getting inhalation from the environment. So the cornerstone to successful treatment so you don't waste your time, you don't waste your money, and so you don't get worse is to get out of exposure. And how do you know you're in exposure? Well, you got to find someone to come and do appropriate testing for you. Uh, we call those people IEPs, Indoor Environmental Professionals. I do have a uh, video on my YouTube that says how to find a good IEP. It's a long video. <laughs> it really helps you kind of get a grasp of who's really going to do their due diligence for you. Because I've seen so many folks where uh, they'll, they'll hire someone to come in, the person will come in, they'll do a visual and inspection. And because they don't see anything, they say there's nothing to look at. There's nothing to find. You're fine. And in reality, the person is incredibly sick. So the real cornerstone to treatment is finding a good IEP that is going to test appropriately for you. Because if you don't have that in place, then it's nothing's going to shift and change. Right. Right. And we're going to have on our website for people to find out more about how to get in touch with you and use your resources. I wanted to ask really quick to finish up though, what's the best way for people to find out more about what you do and, and what you're about if they're interested? Oh, please. Yes. Um, so my practice, my business is called Life After Mold and I'm on pretty much all social media platforms and I have my own website at lifeaftermold.com. Just pretty much go in there and type that in um, and folks will be able to find plenty of podcasts that I've been on that have this information. Um, yeah, there's just a plethora of stuff out there. So looking for me at lifeaftermold.com. Thank you so much for your time. Just a wealth of information. Oh, I hope it wasn't too much information. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> People I think will enjoy going back and reviewing it again. So good. 
Good. Dr. Lauren Tessieras, thank you so much for being here at our summit today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy.